Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with screenwriter Stephen Geller. Mr. Geller has written the screenplay to Slaughterhouse-Five. It was my intention to show Slaughterhouse-Five, but due to the pandemic, we've had to cancel movies at Maine. However, please enjoy this interview I did with Mr. Geller. How did you get the job of adapting Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five? Okay, well, I'd had, and the two years before, I'd had a novel that had been published called She Let Him Continue, and it had been made into a movie that called Pretty Poison and became a, a kind of a little cult film, and Fox tried to dump it because they didn't know what to do with it, but it was picked up by lots of critics, and it won a Critics Circle Award, and I, by that time, film, I studied theater all my life, and wanted to be a playwright and, and a director and, and writer in, 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 in theater, but I was just, I was burned out, and I started writing screenplays, discovered two filmmakers that just really changed my life. Fellini was one, and, 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 and Ingmar Bergman was the other, and uh, even though I'd been born and raised in the film industry, my dad's a composer, my mom's an actor. I just took it for granted. That was family, you know. And I saw the musicals that were made. I mean, the great MGM stuff. I was on the sets and all that. But I just took that for granted. And it was not until Europe really opened my eyes, happened in film. And so I started writing film instead and continued to write novels. And another novel was published and, and the screenplay was circulating. And so the, the producer of the Slaughterhouse, Paul Monash, really bright and talented writer for next to nothing. So he hired me, and uh, that's how I got the job. Okay. How long were you with the production of Slaughterhouse-Five? I mean, uh, the first, well, it was an interesting experience. It took about three months to do, and I realized after I found a, a structure for it based upon, obviously based upon the, the time skip and gadabout, you know, the coming unstuck in time and space of Billy to find a, a through line that would make sense emotionally. And I thought if I if he ran away from reality every time he would, you know, time travel. He would suddenly end up in another in another place. That place had the same emotional effect of what he was running away from. So it could never run away in effect from anything. But it gave me four different four different time frames to deal with. A pre World War Two Billy, the the Second World War Billy, the post-war Billy, and, of course, the Trofalmadorian Billy. So I had four different, in effect, four different plots that keep cutting to, but always cutting to the same emotional space, but in a different setting. It was all very exciting, and uh, it was active, but it was the only thing about Billy Pilgrim that was active. All the other characters, I, I did very little revisions on, they were easy to write because they were all very, um, they were full of movement and tension. And all Billy did was escape. He was, in other words, after the first draft, he was dull as hell. And I said to the producer, you know, the structure works, the, all the secondary characters are there, and who cares about Billy? You know, he said to me, uh, well, do you want to call Vonnegut and ask him about that? He said, I know what you're saying, but I, it's a, and I said, yeah, nobody's going to give a damn, you know, so I bother. He said, well, why don't we call Kurt? I knew his work, obviously. I mean, I loved the book, and I loved Sirens of Titan. 
uh, and the short stories of his that I'd read. But I'm, and I said, fine. So he called Kurt and got on the phone, and I introduced myself, and I said, Mr. Vonnegut, I've got a real situation. You know, the story's lovely. The movie is, is absolutely adorable, except Billy is, is a thorough bore. Isn't there anything, anything in his life that he really loves that just means so much to him? And Kurt said, well, of course. And I said, please, tell me. And he said, "Well, first of all, you know, you know that car that he that he got uh, Valencia." I huh. said, "Yeah." He said, "I said, yeah." He said, "Well, you know, it's secondhand, don't you?" And I said, "No." He said, "Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a secondhand car, and he made a fantastic deal for it. What was that car?" And I thought, "Well, that's not very helpful." Um, isn't there anything else? And he said, of course, he loves you. You know, Spot, I said, the dog. He said, he loves him. So, that And Chris said, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> and I thought, I'm dead. Okay. I said, well, thank you very much for coming it. And the producer said to me, so what do you think? And I said, I, I have no idea. Go out and uh, I don't drink, but let me see if I, if I can maybe start to get drunk and see what that's like. I have no idea, you know, and I just kind of walked around the studio as a universal and just walked and thinking. And, and I realized, I mean, Vonnegut, when we became friends, which was after the movie, uh, one of the things about him is that if you blink, you miss it. And there's only one other writer who has kind of deadpan humor that is absolutely a knockout. And that's, Mark Twain, the only other writer who I've read in American English who can make you howl after he's and it's hit, it hits you and it bubbles up. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, that dog, the dog is the love story. So let's go back and play all those scenes with Spot with the training. Things occur when there's an emotional shift, when, you know, he... He's married, he has a child for the first time, and, and the wife is very thrilled with the child, and he's trained, he's trained Spot. And, and if you take a look at every one of them with Spot, you'll find they always fall at a very important point, and that dog is going to get as old as, as, as Billy, is going to accompany him through life, and that's going to be the love story. And, you know, when, when he comes back... And he's had the brain operation. I mean, the first thing he sees, he gets rid of his family, but there's Spot, and he picks up Spot, and he walks into the bedroom, and he puts Spot on the bed, which is pretty spooky, and sits there. It's when he's zapped by the Trophamadorians and, you know, arrives in Trophamador with Spot. And so, so that was very helpful. Believe it or not, I mean, that gave me a, an emotional feeling very sweet, and, and you care about him because you realize the absolute loneliness this guy is living. You know, so that's there. And then the, the car was amazing. I wrote the scene where Billy buys the car from the and it's a seven-page scene, and it is absolutely filthy. It is so double entendre. It is so damn funny. It's the only sex scene in the entire movie. And it's just this used car uh, saying, okay, Billy, I'm going to show you something I've never shown anybody. Are you man enough to see it? And he goes, I, I think I can do it. I was in the war. 
He said, okay, put your seat down there. Put your seat on that seat. See that little button? And he starts in about lift that thing and put it down. Lift it up, lift it down. Stick it in, pull it out, go back and forth. And Billy's the seat. Back and forth. And the cameras will begin to just the tide of Billy driving and the and the, the used car dealer who's like really sweaty. And the two of them are really into it. And it's so insane. And I, and George Roy Hill, who was in the train, said to me, you know, we're going to get arrested for that scene. And I said, oh, come on, man. It's so damn funny. He said, but it's, I said, look, I mean, you go from there to when he has yeah, the ribbon and says, follow the yellow brick road. You know the whole sexual reference of that, of that car. And you see between, between the car and the dog, I think you're saying a lot, <laughs> you know, about the kind of Billy's living in and the various things that are more important to him than human relationships or relationships with other people. And so uh, George said, okay, I will, okay. I mean, I think, yes, it's funny. I will, but if I have to cut the film, and I know I'm going to have to cut it down, that's going to be the first scene that goes. And this is, okay. And we went to the, I went to the reading with, when he had the cast assembled and the, and they got two pages into it, and Ron Lieben, who's the, the actor who played uh, Lazaro, said, you know, they, they're going to arrest us for this moment, don't you? It was really funny. And anyway, needless to say, the scene wasn't uh, It was the first one to go, but it was terrific. And that's really kind of what, once I found those two points that Kurt had made, that Kurt, he was right about, that Billy cooked, that it was easy. gave Michael Sachs, the actor, gave him an emotional through line, and you can see, you can see what that dog and that car certainly meant in terms of the society Billy was living in at that point. Okay, and that's that. Okay, you wrote the first ten minutes of a film are most crucial ones because in the first ten minutes the audience is going to accept any and all conventions right. of your universe, provided that you do not decide to alter these conventions right. midway through the work. Considering Slaughterhouse-Five has an unconventional structure, could you discuss writing the first 10 minutes of Slaughterhouse-Five and the conventions you were trying to establish? Yeah, uh, in fact, the, what happened was, once I found what I, the emotional through line, which to me was the escape, you know, and going, you know, and what appears to other people is just a kind of, you know, uh, time meaning, but it, it is, to me, it had total relevance emotionally, and that's why it kind of, you follow it through. You don't feel it's just jumping all over the place. The problem that I had initially was how to... And I spent a good deal of time just going back and forth and figuring out how to do it. And uh, In the next cubicle to me in at, at Universal, and then we have these little writing rooms, uh, was a place very much admired, who was friends of my family, Arno Dusso. And he had written Deep of the Roots with Dorothy Parker and lots of plays in the 40s and early 50s. And he was blacklisted and had to leave America, went to live in France. And he was he was in the next cubicle. And he and a producer he was working for, Adrian Scott, who was also a blacklisted producer, the mid-60s, finally came back to the United States. And 
big producer at uh, at RKO before he was blacklisted had come back to, to make a, a movie of the week with Arno on Lincoln. And the two of them were there and, and my favorite time into going out to lunch at the commissary with, with Adrian and, and Arno, whom I, both of whom I admired so much as men, as filmmakers, as uh, just extraordinary human beings. And, and I was complaining to them this issue of coming unstuck in time and space and really getting it down initially so that it's, you know, it's completely understandable, at least the, the convention. And Arno said, oh, come on, I'm surprised. You're a playwright. You should know better. And I said, what do you mean? He said, first 10 minutes of any of any play, of any of any movie. And I said, well, what about it? And then Adrian said, Steve, you know the contract that you have with an audience? And Arno said, when shall we three meet again? I said, okay. The existence of witches. Yeah, he said, just have them come out and tell them. Say it. I come on stuck in time and space. You know, just have them tell something. And I thought, of course, writing a letter to the editor. And the whole, the entire movie just it takes place in the time in which Billy writes and turns it in. And his son-in-law and sister, when he discovers them, they're writing letters to see you. Dad, and he suddenly realizes that is this guy serious? Do you really? Do you see your own death? He said, many times we are, and so that's why I just had him do that simple thing of saying, you know, the editor, I've come on stuck at time and space, and showing the people this is the convention. For example, right now I'm in the Second World War, and there it is. It's a weird scene, and then, and then sometimes I find myself on Trafalgar, and there he is with Montana. And so it's all set up. So you never have to say anything about it again. It just happens. So that was the point. That was the. It's absolutely true. As long as you don't break that convention, you can tell the audience that this is what I'm doing. I can do anything. And you stay, you stay true to its psychic geography, its, its narrative geography, and its tone. And you can do anything. I, mean, I use Macbeth as an example because, to my mind, that's one of the most masterful openings of any play that's ever been written. It begins at the end of a scene with these three very terrifying creatures who have done something and you don't know what it is except that somehow it has to do with someone called Macbeth. And that's it. And it's just a knockout. So, you know. Okay. So that's that's why the opening is the way that it is and how it got that. Okay. Even though one of Kilgore Trout's novels made it in the movie, uh, why was oh, the I character know. Kilgore Trout dropped? Yeah, because, well, first of all, there's, there are two things that are removed. I mean, Kilgore is the whole metafiction. That calls attention to itself as a book and writes itself in front of it, the way that Kurt has. Uh, there's no way that I could have done that at Universal and at that time story. It's just too much. I mean, particularly, the Kilgore is Kilgore is his own character. And, and years later, Kurt asked me to do uh, to make him uh, with my with my wife. It's also do Timequake, which is really the story of Kilgore. And I agreed to do it. And of course, you know, at this point, understanding that Kilgore was always Kurt's alter ego. He's Kurt, <laughs> Kilgore is his favorite writer, but but that would just completely. 
moved the film in a way that I thought was already tough enough to do. And with a studio that, I mean, it was stunning that, that Universal at that time, particularly, makes the movie. You know, it was, the novel itself was a, um, was one of the two Bibles of the anti-war movement. And you cannot consider, you know, Universal Studios as being this war movement in Hollywood, hardly, hardly that, you know, it's as apolitical as you could get, which is also political, but, you know, in a, in a very, to my mind, in a very zombie-like way, i.e. not alive. But it would have been very hard to sell Kilgore as part of that story with everything that the movie itself is doing. As I know, now you could do it. Yeah, there's no question about it. And now you could bring in the voice of Kurt, although it was, in Timequake, I think much more effective. I mean, marvelous to open and close the novel and then to have commentary within it. But if you're also opening, you're making the story a less about what it is than about what it is in and of itself, then also including Kurt in the creative process, and then his alter ego, on it's like too much. My feeling was, you, and I still believe that you do one or the other. I mean, it would be. I, I know that. I think it's where you mean Del Toro wants to do Slaughterhouse again, and I'm sure that you know the will be visual this time, and I'm sure that you know Kilgore will be a much more central. If I were to do it, if I were him, you know, I would take the things that are not central to the original movie, and and and. and you know, I'm just I'm just guessing of what he would be doing. But I know that in Timequake, when Kurt asked us to do it, we did it. I said to him at first, look, before I accept, you know, there's a real issue that's... And, and that is, you're the hero of the book. You're the hero, and you would have to be central to it. And Kurt said, well, I must tell you one thing. He said, you know, as, as you well know, he said, I'm probably the most charming human being you'll ever meet. I said, yeah. He said, I mean, you know... You love me, don't you? I said, I adore you. And he said, yes, and, and all people do. He said, but you put me on camera, and I'm the biggest asshole you've ever met. I mean, there's no, no one more embarrassing. That's not going to happen. I, I can't really be in it. And I said, here we go again. I, hear you, I mean, this is like, this is like, uh, Billy Pilgrim and, and the car and, and, uh, and Spot, you know. But once Kurt comic line made me and, and Kay and my wife create a character that is like Kurt. It's just a high school teacher that does everything that Kurt does in Time Quake and it's, it's one and it becomes the, you know, who, who loves Kilgore Trout's work. So that thing even works better as a result. They prob we had two problems that had nothing to do with the script, it had to do with the situation. Very few in film at that point, if you can imagine this, knew who Kurt Vonnegut was. It was nobody was reading, so they had no, not a clue. That was like one of the things. The second thing was that we were looking. I, I when I realized that studio people, I thought, okay, I guess we better go in with a director. And Kurt had spoken with Milos Forman and uh, about the script, and we were going to meet with him, but Kurt. Fortunately, set fire to his bedroom while he was doing a um, 
falling asleep doing a crossword puzzle and nearly killed himself and ended up in the hospital with smoke inhalation. And it was very, we never had the meeting. He got better and uh, called me up one day and said, and he used that line in some of his writing. You know, I'm, I'm suing Liggett and Myers, incidentally, or J.R. Reynolds. I said, why? He said, because on their on the uh, cigarette packs is saying that cigarettes are hazardous to your health and may cause death and all that. He said, they haven't caused my death, so I'm suing them for false advertising. I thought it was very funny, except that several years he'd gone outside to smoke because now his wife said, don't you dare smoke in the house, given what happened. So he was sitting down outside on, his, on the steps of his townhouse. He was obviously smoking, and he stood up and was and fell and cracked his skull, and that was it. So Liggett Myers or J.R. Reynolds actually won the argument. Huh. So, so that film was never, that film obviously, plus the fact that we could never have made it for one very simple reason. The script never worked because of 9-11. All sorts of, of dystopic things were to have happened in New York in Time Quake, in the novel. There was no 9-11. And of course, 9-11 is, you know, <laughs> to be literary, the grand trope of the of the millennium of the millennium, you know, you can't get away from it. It's not even there. So you know, there we go. Okay. Slaughterhouse is five. Um film editor is Dee Dee Allen who cut mm. Bonnie and Clyde and Hustler. Did you ever and of course because of the unusual structure, did you work with Miss Allen at all? No, no. I tell you about Dee Dee though, I do know her and had met her there and she was always, always one of my heroes. And she's one of the greatest film editors in the United States. Had film editor, film editor. When I went to visit George after he finished shooting the film in New York, he said, I want to show you where the film is. And that's where I met Dee Dee. And we went to the editing suite, but the, all the, uh, was hung up on, in, on four stories, four floors of film, you know, four floors of that building were contained all the cuts from the film. And I thought, oh, man, how are they going to do that? You know, Dee Dee, as I got to know her, she's one of the most, like, all great editors. They're great readers. And she has a literary sense that is just spectacular so that she understood the coloring, she understood the metaphors, you know, that are there. She knew exactly what I was doing. And she knew what the, obviously what Kurt had done. She knew the work better, better than you know at that point, better than George and I. I was in something else, right? But better than George. She's the kind of editor that you want because she there's nothing she misses, and she understands the intention of each scene, the tone of each scene, the diction of each scene, the rhythm of each scene. Very literary and very theatrical sensibility, and an extraordinary eye. I mean, to me, she's one of the heroes of, of that movie. She did such a superb job. And um, the French editor of France was equally good. I mean, the best editors I have, have ever known have been women and have been, you know, incredibly literary. Right, and wondrous. And yeah, she was just such a, a, a pleasure. And you talked about Kurt Vonnegut, but how did he feel about the movie version of his book? Oh, 
I mean, Kurt was such a f- movie. I mean, and I'm saying this out of this is out of love and respect for him, but he at any time that he could talk about that film, about what was there, he did. And in print and live, you know, he was just uh, absolutely a pleasure uh, in that regard. To a writer, I mean, I've never felt better about doing an adaptation, you know, because as I work both sides of the street. I mean, I'm not to write novels, so I know what it's like to do. And when a novelist or essayist, you know, likes what you've done, understands what you've done, and and is appreciative of it, you've really done a good job. To me, that's the most important audience. You know, did I did I capture? Your, did I capture your tone? Did I did I capture the rhythm of your prose? You know, if you say you liked this, because I did. You know, 95% of, of Slaughterhouse is Vonnegut's voice. It's not, it's this very little dialogue. But there's a lot of dialogue in Vonnegut's style. So it sounds like Vonnegut, and it, and it does what Vonnegut does with language and with a- attitude. But it's not Vonnegut, but it is. You know, and when Kurt doesn't like something, he won't. My wife and I did a play, which we had done, which was done, which we did actually in as Boston Playwrights Theater, and then we had a reading in New York. He's a real supporter of the play, and a real fan of the play. But I've said him another piece of writing he doesn't like. I'll never hear from him. He won't say anything, and and that's the way that he is. If he likes something, he's going to give you one hundred percent of it. If he doesn't like anything, he'll give you one hundred percent silence. He won't say anything bad about it. He just won't say anything. Rather remarkable about that. I'm such a loud mouth. I mean, I. Like it or don't like it, you'll know what I feel. But he's he's smarter. <laughs> he just shuts up. Okay. You mentioned this earlier, and I have to ask about it. Um, you wrote the novel She Let Him Continue, which was made mm-hmm. into the cult movie Pretty Poison, and it was adapted by Lorenzo Simple Jr. How do you feel mm-hmm. about the film adaptation of your novel? I thought it was a piece of story. I mean, I really, I really disliked it because... The book is a very black comedy, and Lorenzo Semple Jr.'s humor is just snarky. Batman, how's that? And all of the metaphors and all the the worldview that came out in the dialogue in the book and also in the action was very uh, very sentimental. And very cute and very coy, and there was nothing coy or cute about about the book. And I had wanted originally, when part of my deal, obviously I wanted to write and direct it in a film, you know, a film credit. At that point, I mean, I was lucky to even be able to do the screenplay, but that was also because if Larry Terman, I mean, if he wanted the book, he could, the rights for the book, he could only get it if I did the screenplay. He agreed to that. Meanwhile, and Darren is writing my adaptation, so I wrote this really nasty, funny screenplay. It was really good, and did what the book did, and and Larry's response to it was, writers really can't adapt their own work. They can't, you can't do an autopsy on yourself. And I said, that's a great line. I don't know what it means. And I also think it's bullshit. And he said, no, no, I really think... And he said, so I, what happened was, sorry somebody else who was going ahead writing the screenplay while I was doing it without, you know, unbeknownst to me. And he said, well, I'm thinking of the director. I said, well, I just saw this incredible film made by 
Polish filmmaker who just graduated the Polish film school. It's kind of a hit in Europe. He's got the same kind of humor that the book has. He'd be really wonderful. And he said, well, what is it? I said, water. You really ought to go to see it. I think this guy would be amazing to do this film. Since, you know, obviously, you won't let me do it. He laughed. He thought that was funny. I said, I'm serious. I, I would know how to do this. Anyway, said he got Noah Black, who had just won an Academy Award for Best Student Picture. He showed me the student film that he did, Skater Dater, which was just sweet and cute. And and I said, oh, come on. This is, no, 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 no. There's no way. Well, he's got a really, I mean, it's really hip. It's really hip to have this young film. It's wonderful, but get one hip. Not just because he's young. I said, this is an old man doing a film about a skateboard. There's nothing skateboardy or cute about She Let Him Continue. So he said, well, I, I can't find Knife in the Water. It's not playing. It's playing at the, like Beverly Cannon, one of the, you know, the art house. He said, oh, you mean it's a foreign film? I said, I told you. He graduated from the Polish film school. I don't know about that. He said, who is it? It was Roman Polanski. And he said, well, no, he doesn't even speak English. Actually, he speaks English better than Larry does. <laughs> and then many years later, when I met Roman in, in, in Reading, when I was living in Italy, I told him about it. I said, you know, I wanted you so badly to do She Let Him Continue. Pretty poison. He said, oh, shit, I'd love to have done that. I really could have done it. And I said, no kidding. So I, I, I often dream about what, what Roman could have done with that film. Especially because at the time, it would have been really a I will tell you a terrible tale, however. Uh, no proof that I was correct. Within three days, the crew of the film really despised him because he was giving lectures on how to use a camera to a camera and how to do sound to sound people. He graduated from UCLA, so he knew how to do all those things. And they were furious with him. And evidently, the only kind of directions he gave to say, well, say this scene, just be innocent, just be sweet and innocent. And the second day she said, if he says sweet and innocent again, I'm going to kill him. And by the time the film was over, they had the wrap, they finished the last shot, and they were by the, they were in Great Barrington in Massachusetts by the river, and the crew picked him up, and get one, two, three, they're going to throw him in the river, right? Wrong. There was a puddle right down, right beneath him, with about two inches of water, and they threw him into the two-inch shoulder, breaking his ribs, and the producer, Marshall Backler, who was waiting for Noel in the car, just took off. That's what happens when a crew doesn't like you. So, you know, the film... Story, I hate to say it, and somehow the themes that managed to come through became this like hip little movie that was saved by uh, Rex, yeah, Renata Adler and Pauline Kael and John Simon. How could Fox do this really strange little story? And that strange little story was attributed totally to Lorenzo all the moves in it and the character moves, et cetera, the things that are in the novel were attributed to his, you know, the excellence of his imagination without realizing there was actually a book there. I'm not a fan of Quentin Tarantino's by any means. 
and had spent some time when I was in L.A. actually writing Slaughterhouse. Um, I had been asked to do an apology for the Manson family, which was really weird. Um, was asked to meet with them, and I didn't. I, I finally decided I'm not going to do this, but I wrote a book that was never published because it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sexy and it wasn't bloody. Called Scenes from the Slaughterhouse. It was really a kind of a what it was like writing Slaughterhouse and spending time with the Manson family that hadn't been arrested. And basically, the idea of the book was a plague on all your houses. It's all totally fucked up, and it's not this. Manson was not this demonic creep. Spooky on Life magazine. He was a pimp, and it was a pimp mentality. If you're 32 years old, and you're a jail, you know, and you've been in and out of jails, and you're with 17 and 18 year old girls, acid, you know, coming out, and all you need is acid, and you're gone. Anyway, I'm mentioning Tarantino because I went to see once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, out of just, I guess, out of a certain kind of. To see what he was going to do with the family, and um, I was shocked to discover, <laughs> as as Brad Pitt is making his way to his his apartment in in Van Nuys uh, drive-in, and there's a film playing. The second movie playing is Pretty Poison, and there it is. This homage in Tarantino, who might despise, is doing an homage to a film that I been really marvelous, and I thought it was a piece of shit, and there, there it is in that film, which will, and I'm sure it's going to win Best Original Screenplay, I don't mean Pretty Poison, I mean uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which to me will journey. not that I know any original screenplay that has been nominated that is really kind of worth a hell of a lot, I'm really quite serious, it's pretty thin, although uh, uh, kudos and applause to for the Irishman, which I thought was just a film of incredible excellence. Anyway. Okay. Final question. Has there been any scripts or scripts that you've written that have never been filmed and you've regretted? It's like, gee, that would have made a great movie. Could you give an oh, example? Oh, God. Practically all of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I got, because of Slaughterhouse, I got the reputation of doing um, weird stuff. That is to say, Particularly linear, and um, so I did. I did an adaptation. My the best adaptation. I'm not saying about original screenplays because all of them should have been shot. But uh, two of the best adaptations. One was for John Quine, who was an actor, and Judy Balaban, who was then a producer. There was a novel by H. A. Lang. It's called Jesus Christ, and it's really wonderful. But the best adaptation I ever did was actually a book that I, when it was offered to me, I couldn't read it. I couldn't stomach the writing. And I and it's not the kind of subject matter that I like, but as my agent said, and I quite agree, when someone offers you a book, you have you the good taste to at least read it. And if you say no and they ask you why no, you can say, you know, because I it's not my kind of material or I didn't like it. Or, and if they ask you, you can say why, but you have the obligation to at least read it. So I was going back to Italy, and I'd been handed this novel, and I started to read it. I killed it in no bloody way. And on the way back to Los Angeles, with the provision that I was doing, uh, I had the novel, and I thought, oh, Christ, all right, I'll read it. And I started reading it, and it was um, 
it was the Vampire Lestat. And I read it. And after about 150 pages, flight from Rome to Los Angeles, okay, I, I read the whole book like halfway through, and I thought, this is a French movie. This is all about, it's all about identity. You're made as a vampire. You don't know who you are, and you go back and that's bloody brilliant. That's fantastic. So I wrote I, the best adaptation I've ever written. I wish that had been made because it was so good. And it got into a real, I mean, it was a direct situation because I was working with Julia Phillips, who was the woman who brought you, you'll never work in this town again. I mean, a very difficult person, he said politely, who was, you know, getting off of this only because that's all she wrote about in her book. You know, uh, she and her husband were, you know, the biggest producers in L.A. in the 70s. I and mean, they'd done Taxi Driver and they'd done Close Encounters. And I think the other... Paul Newman... The Sting. Know, the Sting, and, and produced The Sting. So she had, you know, the two of them had made over $300 million, and $30 million of coke disappeared up her nose. And so she was really amazing. And I worked with her. All that was left was just the result of that, and it's just impossible. But the script was really quite wonderful, and she lost the rights to it for God knows what. I don't know what the reasons were. It was never made. Except the other one was even Cowgirls Get the Blues. I heard first draft of that. These are all adaptations. These aren't my own things. Yes, I have a bunch of original screenplays. My shooting ratio is like for every nine to do it that I write, one of them will be made. So that's the kind of nine to one. That's my average. In, you know, 50-some years of writing screenplays, that's about what it comes out to. So the thing I did actually was in Europe. There was a mini-series that I did with Moshe Mizrahi, the Israeli-French director called uh, A Man of Influence, A Man of Influence, and it won the it won the Silver Bear Award, which is the highest award you can get for international And that was really fine. That was great fun, and and a good piece of writing, but I, if you go on Amazon, there's a whole series of novels that I've written since I've come down to Savannah. I hadn't expected that were really a gift. Well, the first one's called Jews on the Moon, and it goes from Jews on the Moon to Jews Beyond Jupiter, uh, and ends up finally with Jews in Dark Matter, with Jesus the Christ and other big And it's really a knockout. Uh, and you can find those. They're just kind of amazing books. And I'm working on a novel now. I'm actually, I mean, I'm in my tenth and final draft. That the form, is unlike any other book that's ever been written, I'm it's called Pardon, uh, Pardon the Complete Collection, and that should be in, on Amazon sometime in the late spring. And that's really as writing. It's the best writing I've ever done, and it's immensely exciting. It has this pretension. It's an erotic thriller, but it's more than that, obviously. And it, it takes up where both Eight and a Half and Blow Up left off. It's just remarkable. It's a remarkable book, he laughed. But it's true, it really is. And the structure of it and style of it is both poetic and cinematic. And it does tight shots inside a scene, inside an, a mind. It does not look or play like any other novel that's ever been written. It's quite true. I'm saying that with... I, actually, I am saying that with great humility. 
it's, it's, I'm so happy that I'm still alive. Because for me, it's just an enormous revelation about storytelling. It does what movies do. It does what film does uh, and poetry all together. So it's yes, yeah, it's, it's wild. Well, uh, you must you must get those six books for your library. I will. Um, and there is a an autobiography that was the last thing I did called "A Sabbath on Swayze." Again, all in, uh, in on Amazon. That really contains. I mean, everybody I've worked with is in it, and uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. But um, I'm really very happy about the. I mean, I, I've never been to the Amazon.com because I'm writing exactly what I want to write without any interference, and and it's up there 24 hours a day, all over the world for eternity. So I'm very happy about that because you know I, that it deserves. So that's really fun. I, I'm happy you did the interview with me, and uh, thank you so much, sir. Oh, it, it's a pleasure. I, I, yes, it I, was. Appreciate it. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay. And best to you. All right, you too. Take care. I would like to thank Mr. Geller for granting me the interview. Today's music is from Slaughterhouse 5. Concerto for Piano and Orchestra Number no. 5 in F Minor by Bach, played by Glenn Gould. <laughs>